Galatians 2, 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is God's Word. So let's pray together. Father, we are astounded that You would send Your Son to die for sinners. Lord Jesus, we are amazed that You would give Your life for us. Holy Spirit, we are blown away that You would take this work and that You would come and dwell in mortal men and apply this work to us. Father, I pray that You'd please help us. Please help Your people. Help us to understand just how badly it is that we need You. Teach us about ourselves and teach us about who You are and Your salvation. I pray that we would adore Christ Jesus the Lord, late in flesh appearing for us and for our salvation. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, similar to the way Cody described the psalm as being sort of transitionary, transitional, uh, this is this sermon is sort of transitional. And so as I prepared and thought and wrote and typed, I realized that it's probably not going to come out very sermonic, at least in the typical way that uh, I try to prepare a sermon. It may come across as maybe not a whole lot more than a series of random thoughts with Scripture references and quotations from other men. Uh, we'll get to the text that I read actually closer to the end. So what we're going to have is, if I tried to make it out into a structure, a really long introduction and then a brief exposition, and then we're going to draw some doctrines out of all of that put together. So the way I want to get our minds thinking is in terms of two different ways that we might use the word how. The way I would describe them is the first one being the how of method, and then the second being the how of implementation. We have learned how a Christian ought to live according to the commandments of God. Now we need to move into how number two. How do I implement that in my life? Hopefully that is easy to understand. We, we might get illustrated with uh, thinking of teaching our children how to walk. A lot of time is spent teaching them the first how, the how of method. Here's how you hold yourself up. Here's how you balance. Here's how you put one foot in front of the other. Here's how you 
juggle balancing and holding yourself up and putting one foot in front of the other repeatedly so that you actually move. You teach them the how. They, they understand, they have to come to understand those factors of how to walk. But then in your household, you might implement a, a next level of hows, the, the how of implementation. And with this second how, we might ask questions like, where do I walk? Now that I know how to walk, how do I implement that in terms of where? Where do we walk? Well, we walk in the house. We walk in our yard. We don't walk any further than our yard. We don't walk in the road. Those are some hows of implementation. When do I walk? Well, you don't walk during free time, or you do walk during your free time, but you don't walk during meal time. You don't walk during nap time. You don't walk at night time. You don't walk during family worship. You don't walk during church. You know how to walk. Now we're going to start implementing the next level of how. Does that make sense? How fast do I walk? Well, in the house, you're going to walk slow. If you're outside, you can walk faster. You can even run if you're outside. If you're in public, you need to walk at the same pace as your mother. Not in front of her. You're not leading her. She leads you. But not lagging behind your dad so that he can't keep an eye on you either. Children should walk with their mother, I believe. Uh, especially in times of danger. Your, our children should be trained to run to mama, not daddy. Because daddy's going to be running at danger. You don't want your children following you there. See, that, that is an, uh, a, a how of implementation that I teach my children. With whom do I walk? Well, I walk with my parents, maybe your grandparents, maybe your friends. Never walk with strangers. How of implementation. You can see the difference. That second how answers the question, how should I now walk, seeing that I now know how to walk? Now, I want to apply that way of thinking, two hows. Maybe that's really confusing, but I want to apply that to our study of gospel obedience because we have learned, hopefully, I've driven this for a couple months now, the how of Christian living. How should a Christian live? A Christian should live according to God's commandments. Now, I want to restate and summarize everything that we've seen and I'm going to go slowly. I don't want to fly through this recap to give the impression that it's not important. Everything that we've learned, we, we haven't learned that to then move to step number two. We've learned that so that we can put it in a bag and bring it with us into the next uh, how. The righteous life of a Christian begins where salvation begins, which is regeneration, the new birth. That's where salvation begins in the life of a particular Christian at the new birth. In regeneration, the Holy Spirit comes and takes out the old dead heart of stone and replaces it with a new heart. The, the, the language of Scripture is that of a new creature, being born from heaven, being begotten of God the Holy Spirit. Robert Raymond defined regeneration as the subconscious implanting of the principle of the new spiritual life in the soul Effecting an instantaneous change in the whole man. If we don't have an instantaneous change of the whole man flowing out of whatever we call salvation, we don't have biblical salvation. It begins with regeneration. Now that monergistic work of regeneration at the outset of our salvation leads to a progressive, subjective, 
synergistic work that we call sanctification. Mono, one, God works alone in regeneration. Synergistic means that God keeps working and now we work with Him. We cooperate with God in our sanctification. We, we are not passive. We work and God works. And I said that in sanctification, the Holy Spirit takes the seed which is planted in regeneration and He comes along and He nourishes it and He waters it and He cultivates it so that we will grow and become increasingly more holy in every area of life. They're always connected. Regeneration leads to sanctification. Sanctification brings with it that which was begun in regeneration. Now, there's a book that I have read and continue to read throughout this, this study that has been extremely helpful to me. It's called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification by Walter Marshall. Listen to what he says. He's writing against the antinomianism, the anti-lawism of his day. And he says, quote, Many are prone to imagine nothing else to be meant by salvation but to be delivered from hell and to enjoy heavenly happiness and glory. We recognize that, right? Perhaps we've been there. People say that salvation, or they think salvation, is nothing more than getting out of hell and into heaven. Maybe some of you children here, when, when you hear us talk about being saved, when you hear your parents talk about being saved, maybe when you leave that conversation, what sticks in your mind is, I get out of hell and I get into heaven. Now, salvation is not less than that, but it is more. But a lot of people think, well, that's all that matters. I, I, I perform some ritual, I say some words, so that I can get out of hell and into heaven. But Marshall goes on to say, we are to understand it. He's talking about biblical salvation. We are to understand biblical salvation, or by biblical salvation, all that freedom from the evil of our natural corrupt state and all those holy and happy enjoyments that we receive from Christ our Savior, either in this world by faith or in the world to come by glorification. Salvation is a deliverance, but it's not just a deliverance from hell. It's a deliverance from corruption and sin now. And salvation, yes, it will be consummated in glory in heaven, but it begins now. And that present work of God is called sanctification. That's where gospel obedience begins. The reality of regeneration, the new birth, leading to sanctification and a growth and an increase in holiness throughout one's life. And then from there, we begin to survey the Scriptures. We saw that God promises that a Christian, somebody who has been born again, somebody who is in the process of sanctification, that person, God promises they will keep the Ten Commandments. Now, when I've gone through this repeatedly in our family worship time on Saturday nights, and I'll have them repeat back, and then they'll, they'll ask questions. Well, well, nobody can do it perfectly. I said, you added the word perfectly. I didn't say perfectly. I just said God promises that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments, and we saw that. I've never, never implied infallibility or inerrancy. 
But a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. We saw that when the Bible explains salvation, it leaves us expecting obedience. When the Bible describes a Christian, it expects a person who obeys God's commandments. When we read the commands of the Bible, we walk away expecting that a Christian is a person who keeps those commandments. And then we concluded last Lord's Day by noting that God requires a living, breathing, flesh and blood righteousness with your name on it, or you will not enter heaven. He requires it. Now, the reason that we went through all of that work is so that hopefully that language doesn't sound strange. If I say God requires holiness of anyone who would enter heaven, hopefully that is not weird to our ears. We should be no more willing to do away with God's requirement of holiness than we are to do away with His promise to make us holy. They go together. We don't get rid of the promise when we get to the requirement. We don't, we, we don't forget about the requirement when we read the promise. They go together. Thomas Brooks, in his work on holiness, he says, God has by very plain and clear scriptures bolted and barred the door of heaven and happiness against all unholy ones. He says, men void of holiness are in the scripture resembled to chaff, to dust, to dirt, to briars and thorns, which are things which are good for nothing, fit for nothing. And he quotes passages like Psalm 1-4, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. No, nobody in the ancient world was gathering bags of chaff to repurpose it and sell it. But we're done with that. We, nobody wants that. Isaiah 41-2, the king tramples underfoot it says He makes them like dust, like driven stubble. Zephaniah 1.17, Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Isaiah 9.19, The wrath of the Lord of hosts will scorch the land. The people are like fuel for the fire. Isaiah 10.6, Against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. In verse 17, the light of Israel will, be, will become a fire and His Holy One a flame. It will burn and devour His thorns and briars in one day. What he's saying is, unholy people, in the language of Scripture, are worthless to God. Useful for nothing. And he goes on to say, this is Thomas Brooks again, What should men, such men do in heaven who are good for nothing on earth? The horse is good to carry, the ox is good to draw the plow, the sheep is good for cloth, the cow is good to give milk, the donkey is good to carry, the dog is good to protect the house. But what is a man void of holiness good for? An unholy person is good for nothing but to be destroyed and to make room for a better person to stand up in that place which he takes up in the world. God requires His people to be holy. Only holy people will enter heaven. And so the sum of the whole matter... Simply put, is that the gospel, believed and applied, produces righteousness. It produces obedience. It produces law-keeping. Now, to be clear, the gospel is not obedience. The gospel is not law-keeping. The gospel, believed, produces obedience and law-keeping. We get that. The reason I repeat all that is you have to believe that. You have to believe those truths. If I ask, how should a Christian live? 
The answer is, according to the commandments of God. But just like that child who's learned how to walk, there now comes the second how, the how of implementation. I know how to live. Now the question is, so how do I do that? And it's this second how that will determine whether or not our obedience is actually gospel obedience. It's this second how that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. That I know of, every religion has a moral code or some sort of rules and stipulations that you have to do to, to fit inside that religion. Christianity answers the second how differently. How do we go about living this life of obedience? When we ask this second how, with regard to the manner in which we are to go about our gospel obedience, we are acknowledging a truth. And that is this, that there are wrong ways to obey. How does a Christian live? He obeys the commands of God. But there are wrong ways to obey the commands of God. And I want to describe for you two of them that I think are the most dangerous. The first is described in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And we can turn there. We're not far from it. Romans 10, 4, or 1 through 4. Paul says, Brothers, my heart and desire, or my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The theme in this passage is not gospel obedience. The theme in this passage is the righteousness of Christ imputed through faith. And yet, Paul implicates his Jewish kinsmen for obeying in the wrong way. He says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And that doesn't mean, well, they won't be held accountable because they really didn't know. No, this is a sinful, willful ignorance of the righteousness that God would provide for His people. That righteousness provided in Christ. And so they sought to establish their own. And in seeking to establish their own, which requires some sort of obedience, they then refused to submit to God's righteousness. Because they sought to justify themselves before God with their own righteousness, they in turn refused to submit themselves to the righteousness which God would provide for them. Now, again, the, he's talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ here. This, this righteousness is imputed to us in, in light of faith. And when we exercise faith in Christ, we're declared righteous based on that imputed righteousness of Christ alone. But the dichotomy here for the Jews was not obeying God versus not obeying God but submitting to God's righteousness. No, God requires obedience of everybody. The Jews were required to obey God's law. But they were required to obey and also submit to God's righteousness as the means of their right standing with God. Their sin was not that they weren't obeying. Their sin was that they were obeying in order 
to justify themselves before God with their righteousness. And this is where we often go wrong when it comes to our obedience as Christians. We recognize, I have to obey God. But then we begin to drift into doing it to maintain our right standing with God, to justify ourselves. God can both require righteousness of men and also design that we're not justified by that righteousness. He can do both. That's hard for us to understand. We, we, we want it to be black or white. We, we want to say, well, if God requires righteousness, then that's the way I'm justified. Or, if I'm not justified by it, then I guess it doesn't matter. With God, it is both. He requires us to obey. He requires righteousness. And yet, as a means of our standing before Him, He doesn't bring our righteousness in in order to justify us. That's the righteousness of Christ. But that's, that's very difficult for us to, to, to keep straight. Because of our pride and our desire to exalt ourselves, our natural tendency is self-righteousness. We all have this tendency to self-righteousness. It goes back to the very beginning. Let's look at Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, their first reaction was to cover themselves, self-covering. But when God came, He had to cover them again with something of His own provision. It wasn't sinful for them to cover themselves. They needed to be covered. The problem is self-covering versus that which God provided. And then... Notice at the end of Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now we have to remember that Adam was, prior to the fall, under a covenant of works. He was to obey, and by his obedience, he would have earned eternal life for himself and for all of his posterity. The tree of life was a reminder of this. Every time Adam saw the tree of life, it was to be a reminder, God has promised that if I obey. And it stood as a testimony of that covenantal arrangement. After the fall, Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, and that way is shut off to keep them from eating of the tree of life. It says, God's speaking to Himself, lest He reach out His hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, I do think that a part of this is that... It was to pr protect Adam and Eve from eating and then being, uh, live forever, sealed in that state of sin with no, mo no possibility of change. But it was also to cut them off from any reminder of a covenant of works. You can't even look at it. That promise is not held out anymore. 
The, the idea that you might obey and obtain eternal life, he, he pushes them out. Don't even look at it. Don't think about it. You can't see it. That's not held out anymore. It's not an option. Now think about this. Why did God have to place the cherubim and a flaming sword to make that clear? I think the answer is because Adam and Eve's tendency would have been to walk back up the mountain and just look at that tree. And just just to, to hold out hope that maybe we could do this again on our own. It had to be guarded because self-righteousness is as natural to us as breathing. I would almost suggest, if we think about the way that Adam was created and then brought into that covenant of works, that that is the most natural state of human nature. Adam was made to obey and therefore go on to eternal life. And so it's very, very natural for us in our flesh to drift back into that thinking. And so we hear for two months or however long it's been, well, I have to obey, I have to obey, I have to obey. And then we start thinking, in order to justify myself before God. That's where you just went wrong. We cannot think that way. Even as Christians, because of the remaining corruption in us, we drift towards self-righteousness easily. Now, we might never come out and say, I'm obeying God's commandments so that I can justify myself in His sight and earn my spot in heaven. We might not say that out loud. But we know, or we don't say that because we know, Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law. By works of the law will no one be justified. So in this room, most of us are not going to come out and say, I, I believe I'm justified by works of the law. But in our thinking, especially when we sin, we recognize I, I disobeyed. I didn't keep God's law. I, I just broke God's law. I've sinned against God. In our minds, we, we think this way. We tend to imagine my standing with God has just been altered and I have to do something good to get back into God's good pleasure. That, that God's fundamental disposition toward me has just changed. Right before I sinned, He looked on me as a son and beheld me and I could look at Him as Father. But as soon as I sinned, all of a sudden it's not Father and Son anymore. It's judge and criminal. That's, that's, we tend to think that way. And so what happens? We recognize our sin and we think, okay, now I must hurry and do some good to make it up. Or I need to grovel before God and other men and wallow in my sin for you know, whatever period of time I deem sufficient. That, that uh, penance that we pay in our minds while moping around. And then when we feel like we've done enough, we just let our minds drift back into, I'm okay with God now. I've, I've, I've groveled, I've wallowed, I've, I've done my, my self-penance. Now, and that is, that, that comes from self-righteousness. That's what we're doing. I sinned, therefore I have to do something good to get back to where I was. You can't. As long as you're still studying to walk in obedience, because you think God's overall disposition toward you hinges on your obedience you're still working according to a covenant of works principle. Obedience equals life. Obedience gets me to God. You're, you're, you're thinking that way. God's goodness toward me is based on my ability to obey. Now that would not be gospel obedience. We might call that legal obedience. We might call that law 
righteousness, but it's not gospel obedience. Now think about the psychology of this kind of thinking. What happens in our minds when we drift back into this legal obedience, this law righteousness? What's going on? Well, when we think about the law this way, remember the law is not just commands. The law brings with it blessings and curses. You take the whole thing. If we're going to live according to a legal obedience, we get the blessings and the curses that come along with it. Romans 10.5, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Do it and live. But Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Every time we drift into that legal thinking, I will obey, I'll, I'll keep law, we're doing that because we know law equals blessing, but disobedience, breaking the law, leads to curse. And we, we, can't have, we can't have one without the other. Now whether or not we fully bought into salvation by works, whenever we start thinking according to this principle, we bring all that comes with the law along with it. Now that, that seems very hopeful for, to those of us in the room who do a good job at keeping God's law. We just walk with blessing, blessing, blessing all around us in our minds. That we're, we're thinking. Remember, it's psychology. I'm thinking. I'm doing good. Blessing, doing good. Blessing, doing good. Blessing. But for those of us who are honest with ourselves, we know that we don't keep God's law. We do not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That is perfect, perpetual obedience. We know we don't do that. So then what is the psychology? Then what has to be resting in our minds constantly? Threat, curse, threat, curse, threat, curse. Even when you try to do good, you fail. And so all, all, you, ha all, all you can conceive of is threat and curse. I'm condemned. In my mind, or if in my mind, God's disposition to me, toward me, rests upon my obedience alone... I'm just going to drown in despair. Even as I'm trying to obey, it's going to be a, an obedience of despair. But that's natural to our flesh. Walter Marshall says again, We are by nature so strongly addicted to this legal method of salvation that it is a hard matter to dissuade those that live under the light of the gospel from placing the duties of the law before the comforts of the gospel. Now, he just hinted at the remedy that we're going to be opening up. He says, you cannot put the duties of the law before the comforts of the gospel. What does that mean? What, what does that imply? If we're going to obey rightly, then we have to put the comforts of the gospel first. Then out of that come the duties of the law. The duties of the law, obedience come after the comforts of the gospel. That's why it's gospel obedience. The gospel comes first, believed and applied. So the first wrong way about, or of going about the life of obedience is to do so in an attempt to establish your own righteousness before God by which to be judged. Again, most of us don't profess that, but when our minds drift that way, we come back into this this legal way of thinking, and for the Christian, this only produces misery. You cannot be happy 
Even in your obedience, you cannot be happy if you're thinking that I'm, I'm living based on a blessings curse principle with my obedience. You might obey perfectly with, with a flinching fear of the threat. That's, that's not the way that a Christian lives. So that's the first one. The second major error, well, we could call this the, uh, the Nike method. We could, just, we could say, just do it. How should I live? Obey the commandments of God. Okay, how do I do that? Just do it. Just obey. It's rooted in the new birth. You're born again, right? Well, yeah. Well, it's essential to sanctification. You're being sanctified, right? Yeah. Well, then just do it. Just keep the law. But again, if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize there is something in us. There, there's a deeper factor at work in all of us that makes just do it easier said than done. Have you ever tried to obey God's commandments and failed? Of course we have. Have you ever set out to walk circumspectly before men and found yourself flat on your face? Have you ever felt a, a little tinge of reluctancy when you recognize what you ought to do in a situation and you don't really want to do it? We've all been there. Even as Christians, we recognize that. Have you ever noticed that you have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out? Could you say, well, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. He recognized in him this tension. And every Christian knows from their experience that obedience requires more than a can-do attitude. It's not just do it. We recognize what Christ says in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We know that's true. Now, we might not go as far as to confess that statement, but we at least looking in ourselves say, I can do nothing. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. It doesn't work. Now, if I just preached everything that I've been preaching and I left it there, that would all pretty much be law. And that's where I had intended to stop until I began to read some of these other men. And I, I, I think this is helpful. Paul's point in Romans 7 is that there's no power in the law. I can tell you for months on end, there's the promise, expectation, and requirement of a living, breathing, flesh and blood righteousness with your name or you won't go to heaven. You can go home every week saying, I have to obey or I won't go to heaven. I have to obey. I have to obey. And that will give you zero power to actually do it. So I could say, how ought a Christian to live? You say, well, keep the, keep the Ten Commandments. Well, how do you do that? Well, I have no idea. I'm trying, but I can't do it. That was Paul's argument. Romans 7, 5, and 6, he says, For while we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, he's comparing two ways of serving. I can either serve by the bare law or I can serve in the Spirit. But the law doesn't provide anything for us, doesn't do anything for us. The law has the power to reveal our guilt, but it cannot empower us to obey it. The law and tablets of stone is a ministry of death. Paul said, called it the letter that kills. 
He states the problem in Romans 7.18. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I said this several weeks ago. Our problem is not that we don't know what to do. Our problem is not that we don't recognize that God has a law or that we are expected to obey. We all know that. We understand that. Our problem is that we don't have the ability to do it. We don't have the ability to carry it out. That word ability to carry it out means to, to bring it to its end point. The Old Testament illustration was of the woman who would bring forth a child and yet not deliver it. You don't get any points for halfway delivery. All that labor, everything up to it, is nothing if the child doesn't enter the world. That's the picture. Bringing the thing fully through. Paul says, I have desires, 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 desires. I don't have the ability to bring the thing into the world. I cannot make it happen. Our desires to do right are not sinful, but they're not enough. We get these desires to do right. I, I, I believe in Romans 7, Paul is speaking as a Christian man, a regenerated man, but I don't think you have to be regenerated to desire to do what is right. I believe that's a part of being made in the image of God. He's written His law on the hearts of His creatures. The problem is, apart from regeneration, we have hearts of stone. They can't do anything. No power. The law in that sense is no better than Moses walking down Mount Sinai with stone tablets. And the people could all look and say, the man Moses has returned. Looks like he's got some uh, tablets in his hand. Looks like they've got some laws on him. Okay, I see him. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I see what you got there, Moses. Um, we understand what's expected of us. And that didn't do anything to help him obey it. No power. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, there are desires in me that if it's just up to my ability, I cannot Keep them. They'll never move beyond desires. So these are the two primary or fundamental errors that we have to reckon with when it comes to living lives of obedience. Self-righteousness and self-power. Those are the problems. You try to go about establishing your own righteousness, your obedience is worthless. You try to go about obeying in your own power. Your obedience is worthless. Now the remedy for those failures must be the opposite of self-righteousness and the opposite of self-power. Now the opposite of self-righteousness would be an alien righteousness. The opposite of self-power would be an alien power, a foreign power, a power from outside of me. In other words, if we are to live lives that correctly fit the requirement and expectations of true gospel obedience according to the promise of God, then we must live our lives constantly looking outside of ourselves for the righteousness which justifies us before God and looking beyond ourselves for the power to carry out the commands of God. Now, some of you remember, there's a five-letter word that the Bible uses to describe what it means to look outside of ourselves for justifying righteousness and power. It's faith. Faith. Now, I want to. that's what we're going to be opening, opening up in the weeks to come, is, is living by faith. But all of that brings us to this passage that I read, Galatians 2, 19 to 20. 
My intention is not really to open it up in, in full detail, but I, I hope that you can see what the Apostle Paul saw. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Some people have no more use for faith in the Son of God than whatever they, they think is required to get the, the stamp of approval by a preacher. You're saved and you're going to heaven. There, I did my faith thing. Now can I go about my life? Paul says, I live every single day exercising faith in the same Son of God. So we, we could draw out several things here. The first thing we see is Paul's relationship to the law. For through the law, I died to the law. Paul is not saying, now that I'm a Christian, the law is irrelevant to me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the law, inasmuch as it reveals my sin and hangs over my head as a sentence of condemnation with no promise of remission, that's gone. I'm dead to thinking of the law in that way. Through the law, I died to the law. Now, how did that happen? How did, how did Paul come into that relationship with the law that he could say, I'm dead to it? Well, he says, through the law, I died to the law. Or, by means of that very law, I died to the law. Now, how does that happen? We'll see that in a minute. Notice what issues forth from this reality, and I'm, and I'm taking the verses in, in the way that they come to us. The end of verse 19, we see Paul's relationship to God. So that I might live to God. So that means in order that. It's a henna clause. What that means is, he's saying, through the law, I died to the law, and the purpose of that was so that I could live to God, or live my life unto God. That he might live the very life that has its focus in, to, and for God. I would say that this, in short, is a description of ideal Christian living. Living to God. Everything to God. He says, through the law, I died to the law so that I can now do that. I can live to God. He had to die to the law. He had to die to the legal way of living so that he could live to God. As with the Jews in Romans 10, as long as he lived in a legal way, keeping the commandments in order to obtain his standing with God, it was impossible for him to actually live for God. You cannot live to God if you're thinking, I'm going to obey and get into his good favor, into his pleasures, to justify myself before him. You can't live to God. Once he died to the law, all the threatening power of the law being removed, he's released to live to God. He's set free to live a life fully pleasing to God, not ignoring the commandments of God, living according to the commands of God in full freedom. Being dead to the law in this way allows the Christian 
to obey the commands of the law without fear of the threats and curses of it. So if we, would, if we wanted to use the term gospel obedience, the life of gospel obedience is called living to God. And the only way to live this life is to live in the reality that the curse of the law is no longer hanging over your head. It's gone. You're dead to the law in that regard. It no longer threatens you. Again, we ask, how did Paul come to find himself in this position where he was dead to the law? Where the law as it revealed his sin and hung the death sentence over him with no promise of remission was gone. How did he get there? Well, he told us, by means of that very law, I died to the law. So we, we ask, how did that happen? And the next verse tells us Paul's relationship to Christ. He's explaining now what he just says, or what he just said. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, Paul says, when Christ was crucified, I was crucified. What's Paul's relationship here? He's talking about what we call union with Christ. Where all that Christ accomplished is made over to us as if we had accomplished it, even though we didn't, through faith. Union. Because of His relationship to Christ or His union with Christ, Christ's crucifixion and death served as Paul's crucifixion and death. In Christ's crucifixion, the curse of the law was poured out on the man, Jesus. You see, the law had to serve its due course. And in the crucifixion of the Son of God, the law served its due course. Christ suffered under the penalty of a broken law, which was the outpoured wrath of El Shaddai, God the Almighty, emptied it out upon His head. At the cross, Jesus of Nazareth took the blanket that was soaked with the wrath of God, the curse of a broken law, and He wrung it out to the very last drop so that He might hand us His robe of righteousness. The law as to its commands was met with perfect obedience. The law as to its curse and punishment ran its full course. It's done. It's like a prisoner who served his 20-year sentence. They let him out the gate. He doesn't have to walk away afraid of being taken back to prison. He served his sentence. It's done. There's no more curse. This is what happens in the death of Christ. The law ran its course. And through faith... Paul's saying, and, and everyone who believes, every Christian, comes into this relationship with Jesus so that what was accomplished by Jesus, especially in His death, becomes ours. The law said, I need a sinner to die. Jesus said, let, let me stand in their place. And the law was satisfied. Through the law, He died to the law. That explains Paul's relationship to the law and to God. He's dead to the threats of the law because they've been exhausted. They're not there anymore. And he can live to God because Christ now lives in him by His Spirit. These are what we would call the legal aspects of the gospel. James Haldane says, Gospel life flows from legal death. Christ died the legal death. That legal death is applied to me. Therefore, I can live a gospel life. I can live the way God commands me to live. Once the legal aspects have been met in Christ, 
then gospel obedience comes. Paul says, I can live a life of obedience, a life unto God. Now, does that mean that Paul, having exercised his faith in Christ and entered into this union, having been crucified with Christ, if you can imagine, this is just pictorial, but Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. So imagine that Paul himself pulls his hands off of the nails of the cross and climbs down. He's been crucified with Christ. And he turns around and he says, I appreciate what you did. I thank you. And now I'm going to go on my merry way and live however I want to. Is, is, is that Was Paul done with Christ at that point? Has the Christian, upon entering into that legal position of justification where Christ's crucifixion becomes our death, have we gotten all that we can from the Lord Jesus? Is that all He offers? I can get you off the hook, but after that you're on your own. Of course not. Does the Christian, once we climb down from that cross, having been crucified with Christ, do we then go about living our life in our own power? By no means. The fourth thing we see in this passage is Paul's life lived in light of those first three things. How does he live in light of his relationship to the law, his relationship to God, and his relationship to Christ? How does he live? The end of verse 20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When he describes his life in the flesh, he's talking about his hourly, daily, yearly life, his physical life that he's going to have to live. He says, I live that life daily, hourly, yearly. I live that life by faith, exercising faith in the Son of God. In light of the fact that he's dead to the law, in order to live to God, because of his union with Christ and the satisfaction of the law, he now lives, and he does so still, by faith. In other words, the apostle never stopped looking at the Son of God. He never stopped. He never stopped looking outside of himself. He never stopped seeking that alien power. He never stopped resting only in the alien righteousness. He never got past that. The apostle says, my eyes got snagged. I got hung up when I looked at Christ that first time. I was looking, I was looking, and I caught a glimpse of Him, and I never stopped. My whole life, I never stopped looking at Him. I couldn't do anything else but look at Him. I can't stop relying upon Him. I can't stop needing Him. He says, everything that I do every day until my dying day is going to be acted out in utter helpless dependence upon that same Son of God. He never moved on from there. Haldane again, he says, that the believer is sanctified as well as justified in Christ and not by his works is a mystery which human wisdom is unable to fathom. We're justified by faith, not by works, yet God still requires the works. We're sanctified by faith, not by works, yet God still requires the works. Synergistic sanctification or our cooperating with God by no means reduces the necessity of faith. We don't stop faithing. We don't stop believing. We don't get up from the altar having prayed our prayer and asked Jesus to come in our heart, say, well, I'm done looking at Him, now I can go back to living. No, we never stop. 
ever looking at Christ. If anything, it demands all the more faith because now we can live to God and yet we recognize in our flesh what Paul recognized dwells no good thing. I don't have it in me to do it. I have to have Him. So here's the doctrine. Gospel obedience is obedience that flows from a believed gospel. That is, it flows from faith. How are we to live? We are to live according to the commandments of God. Okay? But how are we to live? By faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself up for us. There is a righteousness that's imputed to us through faith. And by that we are justified. That's Christ's righteousness. That's our standing before God. But there is also a righteousness that is imparted to us and lived out by us also through faith. We walk by faith. We never get beyond faith in Jesus Christ. We need to be like the Apostle Paul. We, we need to get hung up on Christ. We need to get our, our eyes, our attention snagged on Christ so that we can't get away. We need to always, in, our, in our, our books laying around the house, always have something in that stack about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Keep something nearby to remind you all the time of what Jesus has done, who He is, what He's done. And read it regularly, filling your mind and your thoughts. And, of course, the Scriptures, filling your mind with what He has done. Jesus Christ must catch our hearts and our attention and we must understand what He has done for us and what He's doing in us. And we must look to Him to constantly do it. If I don't believe that God has promised that I'll keep the Ten Commandments, I won't be looking to Jesus Christ to help me keep the Ten Commandments. I'll just move on. Oh, I don't need that. I can, I can live according to my flesh and my own power all day long. But as soon as I see that God has a promise and God has a requirement and God has these expectations, as soon as I realize that, I have to look outside myself to see those things manifested in my life. Christianity was once called the way, but we're not talking about the way as regards a system. We're talking about a person who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. We're not after methods or after the man, Christ Jesus. We don't, we don't, we, we talk about him a lot. And when, and years ago, there was the, you know, the, the Christ-centered movement and Jesus is, it's all about Jesus movement. And there was a lot of talk about Jesus, but it, there wasn't really a whole lot of dwelling and dependence upon the person and work of Jesus Christ in daily life. Following Marshall, he, 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 Marshall's, texts, to use the term Marshall in two different ways, to sort of bend over this nail. He says, basically, the Bible says we live by faith. Let me prove it. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Hebrews 10, 36-38, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. He's not talking about justification there. He's talking about how are we going to live? Until the coming of Christ by faith. First Corinthians or Second Corinthians five, six, and seven. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Galatians five six, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith. 
working through love. 1 John 5, 4, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. We live by faith. And he comments, this is important. As it is one and the same thing to be justified by faith and by Christ believed on. Let's, let's take out the word faith. Let's take out the five-letter word and let's just insert Christ believed on. The life that I now live, I live by Christ believed on in the Son of God. The just shall live by Christ believed on. He says, just as it's one and the same thing to be justified by faith and by Christ believed on, so to live, walk, and work by faith is all one with living, walking, working by means of Christ and His saving endowments, which we make use of by faith. It's Him. We have to understand that in this person that we call Jesus, there is a bottomless chasm of power. A power source in Him. And He is Him, His person, is the only way we can do anything. Especially as Christians in our obedience. It's Him. His power through us. Now this brings up other concerns and this is the, what I want to go in, in the weeks to come. How should we think about the object or objects of faith? Do we just every day, every, a few times a day, just remember Jesus died for my sins, Jesus died for my sins, Jesus died for my sins? Or, or is there more? Is there a broader conception of, of Christ that we take into the, the eyes of faith? What aspects of the gospel are to be believed in this sanctifying faith? How exactly do we conduct our lives by faith? That concept of we walk by faith and not by sight, or, or live by faith. That's usually handed out from the pulpit like a balloon with no air. You know, just sort of floppy. What, what does this mean? No substance. I don't get it. So I want to I, I try to put some air in that. What does it actually mean to live my life by faith? That's, that's to come. I'll close with this. Questions for self-examination. When you go about your obedience, hopefully tomorrow you wake up and you might not look at yourself in the mirror and say, today I will obey. But hopefully there is, there is a mental concept in your mind, a, 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 a worldview, I guess we could use that term, where you just assume it's understood in your psyche that you will obey God on Monday. Hopefully that's true. Now, as you go about that, don't ask only, how will I live? But also ask, and how will I do that? Am I, going, am I doing that because I want to get back into God's good favor? You know, my, my mind drifted a lot yesterday in church and God's really angry. So I'll, I'll do extra good today on Monday. I'll read my Bible extra long on Monday morning. To, to get back in there. Why are you doing it? Is it to get yourself right with God? Or is it because you love God? Because you want to worship God? Because you're grateful to God? When you go about your obedience, how do you do it? Are you seeking strength from yourself? 
You say, okay, you look yourself in the mirror. Okay, I can do this. I can obey. We can do this. Come on, come on, self. We got this. Or do you begin in prayer, seeking the power of Christ, looking to Him? I hope that we're all aiming at obedience, but we can obey wrongly. And what that does for the Christian is it leads to failure and despair. Even as we're doing the things we know we ought to do, and you think, I'm obeying God, and I'm just not happy. I have no joy in my obedience. It might be because you're obeying, thinking if I fail, the curse is going to be right back on top of me. And that's not true. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We'll, we'll, we'll look at Romans 8. When you live with obedience to God as your goal, do you keep in mind the curse of the law? The threat of punishment? Or do you keep in your mind, as I obey today, the curse of the law is gone. No threat. No condemnation. No judgment. See, there's great freedom to live when you really believe the curse is taken away. You're, you're set free to live to God. The threat of judgment's gone. You're not obeying to keep God's favor. You're, obey, you're obeying in light of the fact that because of the work of Jesus Christ, God's disposition toward you is one of a loving and gracious Heavenly Father who desires to do you good more than you do. God wants you to live in the comforts of gospel living and gospel obedience more than you do. He desires that for us more than we do. That's not just because He's a stickler for obedience. He is a stickler for obedience. But it's because He's a good, a good God and a good Father. His face is toward us to do us good. You sin. When you look up, His face is toward you. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us of our sins. If you don't believe those things, you'll never exercise a life of gospel obedience. It's not possible. Because gospel obedience flows from faith in those gospel truths. If you don't believe those gospel truths and aren't consciously aware of those gospel truths, you can't obey God rightly. So there are two errors in our obedience. Self-righteousness and self-power. The remedy is faith. Another righteousness has already been provided. And another power has been provided by Christ and His Spirit dwelling in me. So we look to Him. So let's pray and ask God to Write these things on our hearts. Well, as the elements are passed, we devote our attention to meditating upon Christ crucified. But today specifically, just bring to remembrance this fact that as Christ hangs on the cross, we believe in a penal and substitutionary atonement. We believe that God poured out the punishment of a broken law on His Son. We were the ones who were supposed to be punished. Christ was punished so that we go free. He did that in our place. So as we contemplate Christ crucified, picture, imagine, contemplate the truth as, as Paul stated it, I am crucified with Christ. If you're a Christian, you can say, I've been crucified with Christ. That death, as He hung there, that was my death. That, that law that hung over my head, it was being poured out right there. The penalty was 
was poured out right there, it's done. And then we'll, we'll have communion together.